0: Well, if you want to sound really smart at work tomorrow, you can say that you have participated in the study of Bibliology, Theology, Christology, and this morning, Pneumatology, the study of the Spirit of God. Uh, The Holy Spirit's the third person of the Trinity. Now, you're not gonna find the word Trinity uh, in your Bible. It's a word we've given to the scriptural teaching that God is one being who exist in three co-equal, uh, co-eternal persons, namely God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 6.4, in, in one of the daily prayers that Israelites then and even now would recite, began with the phrase, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But as we study scripture, we see three uh, distinct persons when we talk about God. And, and admittedly, I'll just tell you up front, it's a pretty difficult teaching to understand. But we're gonna delve into that a bit today. There are multiple instances of scripture that indicate there's one God, three persons, but the three persons are undivided, they are one God. And you see this at the very beginning of scripture in Genesis uh, chapter one, in the account of the creation, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we know the Father was there. We know the Spirit was there. John 1, 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. So you see, all three persons, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, are present at the very beginning in creation. In Genesis 1:26, God says, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image. Now, God wasn't talking to the angels because in verse 27 it says, in the image of God, he made him male and female, he created them. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they were one God creating but three distinct persons. Now, are all three persons God. Well, the title, God the Father, is self defining, but Jesus and the Spirit are also called God. John chapter 1, the Word, that's referring to Jesus, was God. Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira had lied about uh, the the gift they made to the church, Satan said to them, Why has Satan filled, or excuse me, Peter said to them, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Listen, you have not lied to man, but to God. So, over and over in Scripture, we see that there is, is, is one God, but the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are all one in essence or one in being. Isaiah five five. Isaiah testified, God's words, I am the Lord, there's no other beside me, there is no God. Now, how... How do we understand this? You know, through the years, there have been different analogies offered to explain three in one. Uh, one I've heard of was an egg. You've got the shell. You've got the, the white. You've got the yolk. It's three distinct parts, and yet, yet it's all one. You've probably heard the analogy of water. It can be in, in a solid form. It can be in liquid form. It can be in vapor or gas form, but, it, but it's all water. Or maybe you've heard the analogy that a man can be a husband. He can be a son. He can be a, a father. Now, true you you have all three roles but but that man is not three distinct persons. So all of those analogies are going to be inadequate to explain God. They're not going to explain first well the mystery of the Trinity. And as I said before in our in our studies during this series on foundations, we have to realize that there are a lot of infinite concepts scripturally, spiritually that we're trying to understand with a finite mind. So there are some things that we're not going to be able to Uh, completely unpack and understand with our finite minds. And and I'll be one to admit to you right up front, I really struggle, Um, sometimes I can't let go of, and and I drive myself crazy trying to think through infinite truth. Like, how is there no beginning and no ending? How how did God get here? How does God have no beginning and no ending? And we can go crazy trying to figure these things out, but I've decided um, that I'm thankful I can't explain everything about God, because if I could explain everything about God, there'd be no need for faith, and, and God wouldn't be God if I could explain him. So we have to be okay with some of these infinite truths that we can't completely understand. Now, that being said, you might say, well, why did you even bring up the Trinity this morning? I brought it up, whether we can fully understand it or not, because it's essential to our faith as believers. I want you to think about the, the Trinity. Look at the Trinity in light of our salvation. Last week we took a look at what scripture told us about Jesus. What did we discover? He was fully God. Always has been, always will be. There's no beginning. There's no end to Jesus. Jesus was not created. Jesus is uh, eternal. He's always existed, always will exist. We saw that in John 1 when it said that the Word was God. But understand that Jesus, while being fully God, also had to be a separate person from God because he went to the cross to die. Jesus had to be a separate person to bear the wrath of God for us. You remember when he was on the cross, it says that God the Father turned his back on the Son. So clearly, two distinct people. Jesus had to be a separate person. Although he was fully God and equal with God, co-equal with God, he had to be a separate person to go to the cross, to bear the wrath of God, to die for our sin, and then to be raised from the dead. In salvation, all three members of the Trinity have a distinct role. John three sixteen tells us that God loved the world so much that God gave his only son. Romans five eight said that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in John fourteen, sixteen and seventeen, we're told the spirit of truth will be with us and live in us forever. So so look at it this way God designed or God initiated the plan of salvation. Jesus paid the price for our salvation, and the Holy Spirit completes the work of salvation. He completes the sanctification process in us. It doesn't stop the minute that we pray and trust Christ to save us. That's the beginning of the process of sanctification, making us more and more like Christ. I can't adequately explain one God existing in three distinct persons. I accept it by faith, and I'm thankful uh, that that's how, who God is and how God works. Now, this morning we come to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Francis Chan, the pastor of Cornerstone Church in Simi Valley, California, back in 2009, wrote a book, uh, and the title of that book was Forgotten God. Subtitle was Reversing Our Neglect of the Holy Spirit. And we have, as a church, for the most part, we've neglected the Holy Spirit. Most uh, evangelical believers, uh, they don't they don't deny the existence of the Holy Spirit, but very few who attend evangelical churches today understand who he is, and and fewer have experienced him or seen his work uh, in their lives. And if you look at the work of the Holy Spirit as, It's identified in Scripture, and especially in the book of Acts. You look at what the Holy Spirit did and how he moved and how he worked, and you compare that to believers and to the church today, there's a pretty glaring gap there, a glaring inconsistency in his work. This week I ran across a study by Arizona Christian University, and they had done a recent study on American worldview as it relates to believers. And one of the things in that study really caught my eye they found out the majority of self-identified born-again Christians don't believe in the Holy Spirit as a real living being. They believe he's just a symbol of God's power or presence. And that's a problem. Most believers don't understand how the, how the Holy Spirit's role is vital in their sanctification process. It's the Spirit of God that works in you and in me as believers to make us more and more like Christ. So if we're squelching the work of the Spirit, then we're not becoming what God has called us to be. The Holy Spirit takes you from the point of surrender when you give your life to Christ and he matures you in your faith, and he helps you follow Christ daily, and he prepares you to live with Christ for role of eternity. That's the role of the Spirit in our lives. Well this morning as we delve into talking about the Holy Spirit, I think the best approach is to ask some, some simple questions and, and see what Scripture says. and let me just tell you, I'm going to be running through a lot of of passages very quickly. I will not read every text. I'll tell you what it says, Um, but it would be really good if if you want to understand more about the Holy Spirit. It would be really good for you to jot down the references I'm going to be throwing out because there's going to be a lot of them this morning. Uh, If you don't have something to write with, if you look on your row, there's probably a mom on your row and she's got gum wrappers and deposit slips and grocery lists. She can give you a scrap of paper. She might even loan you her lipstick or her, her eyeliner pen thingy, whatever, um, to jot some notes, but you want to jot these things down. All right, let's start with this. Who's the Holy Spirit? We've already uh, said that Scripture makes it clear he's one of the three persons of the Trinity, so we start with this. Who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. And I'll guarantee you for the last week when on our sign has been the title of day's message, who is the Holy Spirit, some people probably thought that was odd because most people think of what is the Holy Spirit. No, Holy Spirit is a who. The Holy Spirit is God. He has some of the same attributes of God that we discussed two weeks ago. For example, we know he's omnipotent. We know that from Genesis 1. God spoke creation into existence. The Holy Spirit was part of that. He has uh, unlimited power just like God. Psalm 139, David revealed that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. He asked the question in verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 speak of the Holy Spirit's omniscience, that he knows all things. It says, the Holy Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Listen, if the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God and God is omniscient, then the Holy Spirit is also omniscient. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Hebrews 9.14, the writer of Hebrews refers to the Holy Spirit as the eternal Spirit. So just like God, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, and he is eternal. He's not a force, but he's a person. He possesses a mind and emotions and will. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us the Holy Spirit is capable of thinking, and and he has knowledge. Isaiah 63.10 tells us that you can sin... Against the Holy Spirit We often think of our sin as being against God. It is against God, but specifically, you can sin against the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4:30, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. We saw in Acts 5:3, you can lie to the Holy Spirit. He, he's a person. Romans 8, Paul says that he intercedes for us when we're praying, and especially when we're praying about things we're very distressed about, and we don't even know what to pray or what to say. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 11, he makes decisions according to his will. So the Holy Spirit is not just a force. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he is God. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he had a role in creation. We saw that in Genesis 1-2. Job chapter 26, verse 13 says, by his spirit, that's God's spirit, the heavens were made. We saw the very first week in our foundation study, the Holy Spirit inspired scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures inspired by God. It was the Holy Spirit of God who came upon men, those 40 different authors, and inspired them, put in their minds, put in their hearts, What they were to write. 2 Peter 121. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit's work is to bring unbelievers to faith in Christ. If you've come to Christ, you could not have done that without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. John Chapter 16, verse 8 tells us he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He convicts sinners of the sin in their life, of the righteousness of Christ that we are to live up to and of the judgment that's coming for those who don't accept Christ's righteousness on their behalf. He calls unbelievers to salvation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Who are they saying come to? Those who don't know Christ. He's saying, come, all of you who are thirsty. And so it's the work of the Spirit that brings an unbeliever to faith in Christ. Let me pause there and say this that I've said before. I want to say it again. That's why you can know when the Holy Spirit of God impresses you as a believer to speak the gospel to someone. Could be a total stranger. Could be a neighbor. Could be a coworker. If the Holy Spirit tells you to speak up, it's because he's working in their life. Because he works in the lives of unbelievers to draw them and bring them to faith in Christ. And then he uses you and me to present the message of the gospel. Titus 3.5 says the Holy Spirit renews or regenerates us at the point of salvation. You were dead before you came to Christ. And at the point of surrendering to Christ, you were renewed or regenerated by the Spirit of God. Now, what does he do for us as believers? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he indwells us and he guarantees our salvation. He's the seal. He's the seal. He's the guarantee. He's the deposit on what is to come for us. The ultimate culmination of our salvation is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, he's the the counselor. By the way, the word counselor doesn't mean what you and I think. In fact, your translation may say comforter or helper. He's the one who comes alongside and, and he walks with us. He's our teacher, John 14, 26. John 16, 13, he reveals truth and he guides us. Romans 8, we've already said he prays for us. Galatians 5, 5, verses 15 through 26, the Holy Spirit helps us eliminate the sinful deeds of our life and put on the fruit of the Spirit. You can't do that on your own. You don't have that capability. You need the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. 1 Corinthians 12, he gives gifts to each believer in order that you may serve God and serve his church. Let's turn to this next passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I hit on it a moment ago, but I want you to see something else in there. The Holy Spirit helps us understand God. Now, let me tell you why this is important. A lot of times I'll hear folks say, and maybe you've heard it too, you know, I I really don't spend much time, I don't read the Bible because I don't understand it. Most of the time when someone says, I don't understand the Bible, they haven't spent very much time reading it. But God's Word says that any believer can understand the things of God. Yes, it requires some some effort, some good effort, some work, but the Holy Spirit helps us understand the things of God. Why? Because he's the author of this book. One of my greatest frustrations when I was in college, my degree is in English, and you had to take a lot of literature classes. In literature class, you'd read these works that people had written. These people had been dead for 100 or more years, and you'd read their stuff, and you'd write a paper explaining what they were trying to say. And it bugged me to no end to get my paper back and have red marks all over it, and some professor telling me I didn't understand what the author's trying to say. And I'm thinking, you don't understand either. That author's been dead for 100 years. How do you know what he was trying to say, or she? Who authored this book? The Holy Spirit. So we have the Holy Spirit to tell us, to help us understand what God is saying. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10-12. These things God has revealed to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now look at verse 12. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now, yes, there are some things that God does not give us and things we're not going to understand this side of eternity. But for the things that God has given us that he's freely given us, the spirit helps us understand. So please don't ever say to me, I can't understand the Bible because first thing I'm going to say is, well, have you read it? And the second thing I'm going to say is, have you asked the author, the Spirit of God, who reveals the things of God to help you understand what God is saying to you? Why would God write a book for us and then hide truth from us, make it impossible to understand? He wouldn't do that. The Spirit is given that we can understand the things of God. Now, I'm going to stop there on this list because we could go on and on and on. I've just given you the basics of what the Spirit does. There's certainly a whole lot more that He does, but just with that short list, let me stop here and ask a question. Do you see the Spirit of God at work in your life? Do you have assurance of your salvation? Feel like the Spirit is, is daily uh, guiding and, and teaching you? Would would you be able to look at your life and say, not that you don't mess up, not that you don't sin, but overall you're becoming more and more like Christ and less and less like the world? Would you say that you know what your spiritual giftedness is and and you're using that gift to honor God and serve His kingdom? Or would you say you're growing in your understanding of God? Those are all the things that the Spirit does in us. And, and when you're following the leading of the Holy Spirit, when you've given him complete control of your life, there should be some very specific evidence. Give you some examples of that. Luke 12:12. 12, 12, Jesus told the disciples, don't worry when you're hauled in before people for your faith, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. If you've got the Holy Spirit, you don't have to worry about people who might speak against you or speak against God because he'll give you the words to say. Psalm 143.10, you'll know what to do. In Psalm 143, David said, let your spirit lead me. He will lead you. You'll see that evidence in your life. Acts chapter 1.8, you'll be a powerful witness, not a timid witness, not a shy witness. Jesus said, wait till the spirit has come upon you and you'll receive what? Power and you'll be my witnesses. If the Holy Spirit is in your life and evidence is that you're a powerful witness, you'll have power over sin. Romans 8.2, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit gives us power over sin. And you will be secure in your salvation and relationship with God. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children Of God, I'm going to tell you, and and I've I've said this before, and and maybe I haven't said it in a while. You haven't heard it. um, It might seem odd to hear your pastor say, "I often have doubts," And, and you may not understand that unless you grew up without the the assurance and the presence of an earthly father. People who grow up without the assurance and presence of an earthly father have a hard time understanding the father relationship. But you know what happens for me when I have doubts, when I think there's no way God could love someone like me and accept someone like me, I stop and I would say I search, but really it's the Holy Spirit that searches my heart of hearts. And I ask the question, what is the greatest desire of my life? And the greatest desire of my life is to please and honor God and obey him. Now, if I'm not a believer, I can't say that. But you know who helps me say that? The Holy Spirit, because he searches my heart and he bears witness. If you have doubts about your salvation, you need to listen to the Spirit of God who is in you. John 16 8, what else does the Holy Spirit do? What's the evidence? We're convicted of sin and we desire to repent. A Christian, a true follower of Christ cannot live a habitual life of sin because the Spirit of God who lives in you convicts you. Not, doesn't condemn you like the evil one does. Revelation 12 10, Satan's the accuser of the brethren. The Spirit doesn't condemn you but he convicts you, why? Because he's trying to draw you back into proper fellowship with God. He convicts you of sin and brings you to repentance. And finally, and we touched on this a moment ago, one evidence of the spirit in your life, Galatians 5, and 23, you produce fruit that makes it clear you belong to Christ. If you're driving down the road and you see an orchard and it has oranges growing on it, you know those aren't apple trees, right? You know a tree by its fruit. The Holy Spirit enables you to produce fruit that makes it very clear that you belong to Christ. Now, here's the question this morning. If you don't see the evidence of the Spirit working in your life, what does that mean? One of two things. You don't belong to him, or you're you're stifling his work in your life. The Bible's very clear. If if a person doesn't have the Spirit, he doesn't belong to Christ. If a person belongs to Christ, he has the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Paul said, you're not of the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Scripture says, at the moment of salvation, at the moment you confess your sin, at the moment you ask Jesus to forgive you, at the moment you accepted his death on the cross on your behalf, at the moment you made him the Lord of your life, at that moment... The Spirit of God came to indwell you. It doesn't happen later, as some denominations teach. The Bible says at the moment of salvation, the New Testament makes clear the Holy Spirit's received at the moment of salvation. So what about the true believer who's not experiencing the work of the Spirit in his or her life? Well, there, there are two different words here we need to consider. The first word is indwelling. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment of salvation. It's it's an act of God. John 14, 26, Jesus promised the disciples he's, he's leaving. They're, they're upset, and he says, look, it's going to be even better for you because I, I'm limited. I'm in a human body. I've, I've accepted the limitations of a human body. I can only be in one place at one time, but the Spirit, God, can be everywhere. So he promised the Holy Spirit would come and indwell them, and he promised for the believer the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is permanent. He'll never leave. And the permanent indwelling of the Spirit is for all believers. There's no exception. It's not for the the super saint level believer. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. The only condition to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is faith in Christ. But, But here's the second word that we need to talk about this morning. It's the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is given by God. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is up to the individual believer. You know why some believers don't sense the presence of the Spirit, don't see him working in their lives? It's not because they don't have the Spirit. It's because they're not filled with the Spirit. He's not in complete control of their lives, and so you don't see the evidence and presence. Now, what do you suppose it is that keeps a believer from being filled with the Holy Spirit? It's a little bitty word. What do you think it is? It's sin. It's sin. It's sin. Ephesians 4:30 tells us we can grieve the Holy Spirit, First Thessalonians 5:19 says that he can be quenched. In other words, we can limit his power working in us. You see, we have to choose to let the spirit have complete control, and that's a choice we have to make daily. That's not a one-time choice like salvation. Every day we have to choose to let the Spirit have control because where sin inhibits the Holy Spirit, obedience releases him and allows him to, to fill us. And So when, when you and I obey God, when we, when we obey the things of God, the Spirit has freedom to occupy every part of our lives. He, he will be able to guide and control us. His power will be at work in us and, and it'll be very evident. Everything we do will honor God and be fruitful to the kingdom of God. Now, did you know that as believers, we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 5.18, it's a command. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What that means is because we're commanded to be filled, it's not automatic like the indwelling. If it was automatic like the indwelling, it it wouldn't be a command for us. But God has said we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So how are we supposed to cooperate and how are we supposed to allow the Spirit to control us so that we can be the people God has called us to be? Let me give you a real simple um, analogy this morning. I want you to imagine that your heart or picture your heart or your inner life is a house that has many rooms. At the point of salvation, when you surrender to Christ, you give your life to Christ, you you open that house. And you invite the Spirit in and you give him access and you allow him to be in any room of the house and to do anything he pleases in your house. One day you're in your house and you're sitting in your den and you're watching some inappropriate entertainment. It's leading to thoughts and desires that don't honor God, don't honor the Spirit. And while you're sitting there doing that, the Spirit comes in and mentions to you that what you're doing is sinful, and you decide just to keep on watching the entertainment so the Holy Spirit slips out of that room. He's grieved. He turns away. Maybe another time you're in the kitchen. You're engaged in, a, in an argument with a family member, and in that process, the things you're saying and, and what you're doing, the way you're behaving, you're unkind, you're impatient, you're unloving, and the Holy Spirit slips in the kitchen and, and whispers in your ear, but you ignore him, and so he withdraws from the kitchen. Now, you can imagine if that scenario repeats itself over and over again in the different rooms of your house or your heart, pretty soon the Holy Spirit's going to be confined to a small closet in the back of the house. You're going to wonder why you don't feel close to God. You're going to wonder why living for Christ is so hard. You're going to, when you hear experiences of people experiencing the power and the work of the Spirit in their lives, you're going to wonder, why why not me? So, so what do we do to experience the infilling of the Spirit? I'm, I'm going to give you four things this morning, very simple, but not easy. How do you make sure you're in a place where you can experience the infilling of the Spirit who indwells you? These, again, are daily choices. Number one, you desire and you pray for the filling of the Spirit. You've got to want it. You have to tell them you want it. You pray and you ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you help me today to let you have complete control? Would you help me today to open up every room uh, of the house of my heart and, and let you point out anything that's not pleasing? Would you help me today to listen to you when you speak into my ear, when you speak into my heart? Would you help me to obey? Secondly, you have to confess and repent. When the Holy Spirit speaks into your heart and into your life, something that he is displeased with, some area of sin, you don't just go on. You stop and you confess that. What is confession? It's just agreeing. You agree with him. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. That is sin. That is displeasing, dishonoring to the Lord, disobedient. But you also repent. If you're in the den and the Holy Spirit comes in and talks to you about your inappropriate entertainment, you don't just confess, you repent. You need to go through the den and see if there's any other thing in there you have that is displeasing and get rid of it. To repent is to change course or to change action. You don't just confess and then go right back into the den the next day and pick out something else to watch. It's just as inappropriate. So you desire the Spirit, you pray for the Spirit, you confess and repent. Third, you surrender and obey. Whatever he says, you do. I mean, mean the answer to what the Holy Spirit reveals in your heart and life, the answer is yes before you even hear what he has to say. Holy Spirit, whatever you tell me, whatever sin I need to confess, whatever action I need to take, whatever you tell me to do, before you even speak the word, the answer is yes. I'm surrendered to you in every part, every area of my life. I will obey. And then the last thing is simply to stay away from sin. Stay away from sin. When that temptation comes, you immediately deal with the temptation. You make the choice. You stay away from whether it's places or, or people, whatever it is that would lead you to sin, you stay away from it. My mother used to watch Hee Haw. My mother used to watch Hee Haw. I don't know if I was just passing through the room or for some reason I sat down, but I'll never forget this skit. There was this Doc character on Hee Haw, and this man comes running in, Doc, Doc, I broke my leg in two places. And the Doc says, well, then stay out of them places. You know, for most of us as the believers, when it comes to the Holy Spirit and the incredible work that he does in us, we, we live like a guy that you may have heard about, a guy named Ira Yates. Ira Yates lived back in the late 18, early 1900s. He and his wife, Anne, he'd had a little bit of success in business, but he really wanted to get back to farming and ranching. So he and his wife, Anne, bought a farm out in West Texas and it was a hard life. They they barely could get by. They they typically didn't have enough money to make the mortgage and and the rent payments. Fortunately for Ira Yates, back then there was beginning to be some wildcatting in in Texas and Ira Yates invited uh, an oil company to come drill on his land. And in the early 1900s, it was the largest discovery of oil in Texas. You may have heard of the Spindletop oil well. By 1929, just five of the wells on Ira and, y- and, and Ann Yates' property, just five wells were producing 112,000 barrels of oil a day. Back then, oil was $1.19 a barrel, and so they were pulling in $133,000 a day. In Today's dollars, that'd be about $1.7 million. At today's oil prices would be over $9 million a day. They didn't have any problems anymore why because they had all the resource they needed now they always had all the resource they needed they just didn't realize it that's the way it is with a lot of Christians today we have all the resource we need when it comes to spiritual benefit we are stinking wealthy but we act like we don't know that the resource is there Someone once said, a man's greatest folly is not the abuse of riches, but it's ignorance of the riches he possesses. We don't need to be ignorant people with the riches available to us to live this life with the Spirit of God working in us, living through us. It's an incredible gift that God has given that we've been woefully ignorant of. It's time to allow the Spirit of God to work in his people, to control, to guide, to lead, to direct, to make us what God has called us to be. It doesn't have to be as big a struggle as it's been. We don't have to go through life wishing we were more this or that spiritually. The Spirit of God has unlimited resources available to us. We just have to avail ourselves of the resources by surrendering and allowing the indwelling to become an infilling that flows from us.